The only way to be happy is for everyone to be made equal. So, we must burn the books, Montag. Right now, ye might well. Show us your crooked jaw. But it cannot stay in the Shire. No. No, it can't. What must I do? She doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. Peace. I hate the word. As I hate hell, all Montagues and thee. And therein, as the bard would tell us, lies the rub. I want you to try an experiment with me. The next time that you meet someone, I want you to encapsulate in your mind within that first, you know, 10 to 15 minutes, or maybe you've only known this person like an hour, but encapsulate in your mind your uh, predispositioned judgments of that person, of who you think that person is. Um, because we all do it, you know, we, we're all taught that we should not judge and we should not have prejudices and we should not stereotype people. And these are all good things. But, but the moment that we meet somebody, we, we assume that by certain ways that they uh, present themselves, the way they dress, the way they talk, we start to, our, our mind is geared to do this. We start to extrapolate and make assumptions about an individual. Now, here's the experiment. The next time you meet someone, I want you to encapsulate in your mind who you think that person is in that moment. And then hopefully this is someone that you will get to know over a longer period of time. And after you've known that person for a month, think back on your original uh, judgments of this person. Because what you'll find is usually every person that you meet ends up being much more nuanced than you thought they were upon first meeting them. And this is a little game I play at work pretty often because I have the opportunity where I am interviewing and hiring individuals pretty often at my work. And, and I do this little game because in an interview, you kind of get a, a small little window into who that person is, but really they're trying to present the best side of themselves and because uh, their goal is to get the job. And so often when we actually move forward and hire someone that I've interviewed, I, I like to give it a month and then look back on their interview and, and just think about how much I know about them now and how that changes the way that I look at them or uh, perceive them as a human being. So I bring up this experiment because I feel like characters in a good story function this way as well. Uh, characters in a movie function this way as well. That on the surface, we, we, we think we know who they are out of the gate and we make these snap judgments. And uh, But the more you get to know them and as the story rolls forward, it, it should reveal more and more and more about who this person is as a character. Last week, we discussed this idea of how to reveal and create interesting characters, and I gave three out of five of the ways that I've seen done successfully in books and movies to make these characters interesting and to reveal uh, the, the character that, that is inside of, you know, this, this fake individual you are making when you're writing. And those first three ways that you can do it are as follows. Uh, you can reveal characters based on how others talk about them or respond to them, especially when that character's not around. Second, it's based on the choices that the character makes in the story. Every time the character makes a choice, it's a significant moment to say something about who they are. The third was how they react when an obstacle or a challenge or a threat 
is thrown their way. Now, if you wanted to dive deep into those things and you missed last week's episode, I would invite you to go back and listen to that first episode, especially if you kind of like to experience the story from the beginning to the end. So the beginning would be episode or part one of this study of characters. And today we're doing part two and we'll dive into that now. And we're going to discuss ways number four and five on how you can reveal character. The fourth way that you can reveal character is in what they say and in how they say it. Now, I, uh, I'm going to reference a bunch of movies here. We've talked a lot about different movies and books, um, but I have to say that movies lean much more heavily on dialogue than books usually do. A book, we can get inside the character's head. We can hear every thought, uh, which is certainly interesting, and uh, that, that has its own way of revealing character by seeing their thoughts. Uh, but in a movie, they don't have that luxury. So they lean heavily on what a person says or sometimes what they don't say speaks volumes to their character. And it's to the point which certain phrases, certain expressions have become synonymous with these characters and who they are. Some of them are kind of gimmicky, um, and but a lot of times they are really subtle ways of revealing character. So I'm going to go ahead and read just a few lines here. And these are quotes from films. I'm not going to put any voice inflection with it. I'm just going to say the words. And I want to see if you can recognize exactly. I'm pretty sure you'll get all of these. But if you can recognize exactly where this quote comes from. So here we go. First one. Do or do not. There is no try. Okay, did you get it? Yoda, right? And he's like this this wise person, so he like kind of talks funny and kind of backwards. That's one of the ones that I was thinking is, and uh, wow, am I going to get punished if the wrong people hear me say this, but I do think the Yoda talking in inverse is a little bit gimmicky, um, but it, it works. Uh... It, it works okay. Um, it's just not my favorite. But they. But the point is, they are using what he says and how Yoda speaks to reveal his character that he's got like this wisdom beyond what most people see. Okay, next one. I'll be back. Now, without doing any sort of uh, voice inflection or any sort of an accent with that one, that one might have been harder. It might be easier if I do it like this. I'll be back right? It's the Terminator line. How about this one? Just keep swimming. I love that line. In fact, it's popped into my head a number of times when I'm going through something hard. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Like it it speaks volumes to Dory's character. And I think it's actually a really powerful line that she's like, just keep swimming. And honestly, that character, that little fish, Uh, has been given a pretty tough lot in life. Um, Can you imagine losing your family just because you forgot where they're at? (laughs) But she has this attitude to just keep swimming. It's great. Okay, next one. My precious. Okay, so I I gotta know. Did you think of Gollum? It's interesting because it's just two words, my precious. Almost, almost, you could just use the one word, precious, and instantly people think of Gollum. That's that's how synonymous that word has become uh, in reference to his character. He even calls himself precious much of the time. Um, and so, so that line is just 
just melded to his character. Okay, here's another one. This one's a little bit uh, less well-known, but I think, I think still a lot of people will catch this. You can't handle the truth. That one is said by Jack Nicholson, and it's said a little bit more like this. You can't handle the truth. And that's from A Few Good Men, a really, really great film. Tom Cruise, uh, Jack Nicholson. Um, and it speaks volume to his character because his character truly believes that most people, the average person, can't handle knowing the truth, but the truth is correct and morally right. And that's what's called into question throughout the, the whole movie. Okay, here's the next one. Want to see a magic trick? Man, I wish I could be there and watch the looks on people's faces as they're hearing these lines spoken without any inflection. Uh, and maybe this one went over your head, but the moment I hear, want to see a magic trick? Of course, I'm like, boom, Joker. Like that line from The Dark Knight is so memorable. It's so catchy. And obviously it's what happens right after he says, want to see a magic trick that, that really grabs our attention um, because we have such a strong emotional response to it. But the fact that Joker would show up to a business meeting and that's how he makes his entrance, like talk about a big entrance. Now, I know we talked a little bit about Joker previously, uh, but I actually have a ton of lines here from Joker uh, because almost everything he says just just reveals tons of his character which is weird because we never really get to know his backstory but his mental state is in such a weird place that everything he says is just dripping with uh kind of creepiness but but also uh almost genius it's it's really interesting uh joker as a character so here's another one of his lines what doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger Right, so so he's the type of guy. If we're if we're talking about how dialogue reveals character, Joker is the type of guy that will take you know this common expression that is supposed to get you amped up. Like, yeah, when you're going through a tough time, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. And he's like, no, he actually just changes one letter. <laughs> what doesn't kill you simply makes you stranger. And you know that he's speaking from a place of of personal experience because the things that he endured in life, they didn't make him stronger. They just messed him up. And, you know, maybe he's right. Uh, things that we know about PTSD and trauma and the way that people carry it, this idea that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger isn't always true. Like sometimes it can uh, make you have some real struggles in life. Um, Oh, here's another fabulous line from Joker. And again, this just speaks volumes to his character. He says, do I really look like a guy with a plan? You know what I am? I'm a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't know what to do with one if I caught it. You know, I just do things. Um, <laughs> uh, and that's where you get this weird dynamic between genius and psychopath with the Joker. Uh, in that opening scene where he does the magic trick, it's one of my favorite moments in the whole movie for the character Joker because um, he sits down and uh, he has a line of dialogue and you need to go watch this scene um, if you haven't noticed this before because I'm, I've rarely seen this done. But he has a line of dialogue where he's about to say something and then he changes his mind and says something else. 
And the reason this stands out to me so much is one, I have, I've been to, uh, I've got a degree in screenwriting and I've been to many, many different classes and you don't waste lines. Most screenplays, you've got about 120 pages to tell your story. You're very restricted on what you can do uh, for a film. You don't waste time in a screenplay. It just doesn't happen. Like good writing, you don't waste time. And so the fact that they leave this line in when Joker is going to say something and then changes his mind, they leave it in because it speaks to his character. So what happens is Joker does the magic trick. He sits down and uh, he, he starts talking to him. And, and uh, one of the mob bosses is really frustrated that Joker is there. And Joker says, you see, you see a guy like me. And then a guy says, a freak. And Joker looks at him and then he changes his mind and he doesn't continue with that thought. He goes another direction. And the reason I'm pointing this out is it goes right back to what he said about chasing cars. Do I look like a guy with a plan? Yeah, a little bit of a plan, right? But not necessarily all the loose ends tied up. <laughs> he, he, he goes into situations not necessarily knowing how it's all going to work out. Um, and being okay with that. Joker strikes me as a person who is extremely okay. He's, he's very, very comfortable with the unknown and not knowing exactly how things are going to work out. In fact, he's not really not worried about them working out at all, just like a dog chasing cars. And so I love that line where he says, you see a, a guy like me, dot, 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 and then he changes his mind and goes to say something else. Why does that speak to his character? Because he didn't go into this meeting with a prepared speech. That's what that line is saying. He doesn't have a prepared speech as he's going to talk to these mob bosses. He just goes in to stir the pot. And the only thing that he knows is that whatever he does, he's going to get a reaction out of them. And that is the Joker. Okay, okay, okay. That's enough of me pontificating on how amazing the Joker's dialogue is. Of course, this is all underpinned very heavily by Heath Ledger's amazing performance of the Joker. If you haven't seen The Dark Knight, do yourself a favor and go watch it. It is one of the most jaw-dropping performances you've ever seen. Um, Heath Ledger did such a good job as Joker that it's, it's unnerving. You like, you can't take your eyes off of him anytime he's in a scene. And that's when you have an interesting character, a character that grips you is when you can't take your eyes off him. You're like, I, I have no idea what they're going to do next. Everything Joker does seems to be from left field. So again, enough of me pontificating and, uh, preaching, the amazingness of Joker. And let's pivot to another slightly deranged character. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Gollum. Uh, I want to read a, a few segments of his dialogue from the book The Hobbit, and, and you can totally see how his dialogue is setting him up as a super interesting character. And what I find more interesting is that Tolkien didn't have the entire world worked out yet uh, for Lord of the Rings. And so this is kind of like the seeds of it. But man, even still, he he knew a lot about Gollum and, and sort of setting him up to be this really complex character. Okay. Suddenly up came Gollum and whispered and hissed, Bless us and splash us, my precious. I guess it's a choice feast. At least a tasty morsel it'd make us. Gollum. And when he said Gollum, he made a horrible swallowing noise in his throat. That is how he got his name, though he always called himself my precious. 
What is he, my precious, whispered Gollum, who always spoke to himself through never having anyone else to speak to. Okay, so do you notice what's happening here? Gollum refers to himself as us, and he talks to himself. What is he, my precious? Precious is referring to him. And what does that reveal? And it's kind of on the nose here, but Tolkien felt uh, he needed to insert a parenthetical and let you know Gollum's speaking this way because he never has anyone else to speak to. So that lets you know, like, how long has he been stuck down in this cave? Um, But then he refers to himself as us. This is setting up things that really we don't come to understand until the Two Towers, where we find out that Gollum does have this sort of split personality. And so when he says us, he really, there there are almost two sides of him. There's Smeagol and there's Gollum. And, and Tolkien is setting that up here strictly through Gollum's dialogue and the way that he refers to himself. Um, and then it goes on and Gollum challenges Bilbo to a match of riddles. And again, this to me was just is so surprising. When you first read The Hobbit, it's like kind of interesting. You're like, oh, Gollum, like he knows riddles. He's been in this cave for forever, but he, he clearly didn't wasn't born here if he knows all these riddles and it totally sets up the fact that Gollum was once a store which is is very similar to a hobbit it's a type of hobbit and so we're getting this this idea that Bilbo and Gollum actually have a lot of similarities and it all comes through in their dialogue in swapping these these sorts of riddles Another bit of dialogue that just hits it on the head completely with Gollum is the repetition of the word precious, kind of like I mentioned a little bit earlier, right? It speaks to his character, but what does it speak? Anytime dialogue is repeated, it, it usually references or reveals obsession, right? Gollum is obsessed with the ring and he refers to it as his precious. And he started to call everything precious and precious and precious. And and it speaks to the state of his mind that he has this obsession. In fact, we see this elsewhere uh, in another story. Um, I know I'm referencing Moby Dick all the time, but man, it's just so good. Uh, But every time that the ship in Moby Dick comes across another ship, Captain Ahab rushes out and speaks to whoever's in the other ship, and he asks the same thing every time. He says, hast thou seen the white whale? And he says it like several times they come across different ships uh, as they're traveling across the ocean. And... He, he runs out and he says, hast thou seen the white whale? Hast thou seen the white whale? And he asks it enough times that you start to get very, uh, pretty quickly in the book. You're like, oh my gosh, like that's his entire objective. And there is no other book that deals with this idea of obsession more and in, in with more skill and, and more depth of character than Moby Dick. It is about a dangerous obsession and so every time he says that dialogue, has seen the white whale, it, it speaks to his character. So repetition, it reveals obsession. Um, one more that that makes me think of is Princess Bride. And in the book and the movie, and by the way, the writer who wrote the book also wrote the screenplay for the movie. And so they're actually very, very close to one another, even down to lines of dialogue are the same between the book of Princess Bride and the film. Vizzini, the Sicilian uh, robber, kidnapper, and he has this line of dialogue that he repeats over and over and over, and you all know it if you've seen the movie. Inconceivable! 
He's saying that over and over and over. And in this case, uh, while it doesn't denote the level of obsession that my precious does for Gollum or um, hast thou seen the white whale does for Ahab, this repetition of inconceivable, it to me, it speaks two things. One, it speaks to Vizzini's pride, his ego. Um, he likes using big words and they even draw attention to it when Inigo is like, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Um, but he's always saying inconceivable instead of just using a, a more lay term like, I can't believe this, right? It's always inconceivable. And and the fact that he repeats it uh, several times um, speaks to his character and where he's at, that he likes using big words and, and he thinks himself really shrewd and really smart. And of course, as it plays out, um, between him and the man in the black mask, we know that he thinks himself super genius, super intelligent, super smart. He's super special. And so he would use a word like inconceivable. It's really good writing to reveal his character through just one word. And that's the power of, of dialogue done well. To wrap up this section on the power of dialogue, I want to share a clip from Mr. Megorium's Wonder Emporium. It is a beautiful little film. Um, there's so much in it that is very, very powerful, but very, very subtle. And it's a kid's movie, but really it talks about bigger things than than what a kid would typically be talking about. It's like one of those movies that's made for kids, but it still has a lot of depth for parents who are watching with their kids. So watch this scene or listen to this scene from Mr. McGoran's Wonder Emporium. And let me give a little bit of a, of a setup for it so you know what's happening. Um, they have a magical toy store and most adults can't even see that it's magical. Uh, and they need to hire an accountant. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, Mr. Megorium has deduced that what an, an accountant is actually a mutant. Um, and so they call him Mutant. You'll notice that in this scene, he references him as Mutant. Um, but they're referring to the accountant. And so this accountant comes in, he's just an everyday Joe Schmo, kind of, kind of a serious guy. And he has this interaction with Mr. Megorium. And it is just beautiful what two lines of dialogue can do for their characters. So I'm going to play the clip and then we'll talk about it. Hello, excuse me, miss. Hi. Oh, hi. Um, hi. Um, hello. <laughs> um, I believe Mr. Megorium sent for me. Oh, wow. You're really well dressed for a shadow puppeteer. <laughs> No, no. I'm Henry Weston, the accountant, here for an interview. Oh. Hello. My name is Mahoney. I am the store manager. Pleasure to meet you. I have to admit, when the agency sent me, I had no idea that this was a toy store. Shh. These kids found out this was a toy store. We'd have a madhouse on our hands. That was a joke. I know. Okay. Uh, you probably want to speak to Mr. Megorian. Why don't you give me a second? Ah, greetings, Edward Megorium, toy impresario, wonder aficionado, avid shoe-wearer. You're here for the accounting position. Yes, Henry Weston. Mm -hmm. Name the Fibonacci series from its 11th to its 16th integer. Hello? Uh, 89, 144, 233, 377, 610. Perfect. The number four, do we really need it? 
If you like squares, you do. Oh, I like squares. Good. Now, the hot dog to hot dog bun ratio. Why, for the love of mustard, are there never enough buns? Extra hot dogs. Yes, but why? In case you drop a couple. What kind of insufferable fool drops a hot dog? Anything can happen, sir. Anything can happen, hmm? How absolutely true. You're exactly the mutant I'm looking for. You're hired. What? You're hired! That's it, huh? That's all I need. Uh, sir. Don't you agree, Mahoney? No, not exactly. Perfect. I've heard great things about you. Really? No, not yet, but I'm sure I will. Oh! You see, you brought your abacus along. Top notch. Come along. I'll show you the store. Okay, I have to admit that this is like one of my favorite scenes of all time in any movie. And, and I love how through just, you know, a few lines of dialogue, so much is revealed about these two characters. You have the mutant, the accountant, who is your run-of-the-mill adult who uh, kind of sees things as just, just plain and everyday life. And he's not looking for anything special and he's kind of stale, to be honest. Um, this is revealed. Mahoney tells a joke and, you know, she's like, don't let the kids know that this is a toy store. We'd have a madhouse on our hands. And he looks at her and she's like, that was a joke. And he says, I know. And it's like, oh, you're one of those guys. First off, I don't think he got that it was a joke. And then to pretend like he did get it was, an, it was a joke. He's trying to save face. But what he ultimately does is makes Mahoney look stupid but he's not trying to he's just that type of sort of stale kind of awkward kind of a guy and so do you see how quickly this dialogue just shows who he is right uh a, a less experienced writer might have him chuckle at the joke and like shoot her a weird look or something like that it, but but to have him just like stare blankly and then be like i know it's like oh it's painful but it speaks volumes to his character so then Mr. Magorian comes in, and we already know that he is eccentric the way he introduces himself. He calls himself a toy impresario. Um, he, I love that he ends his resume with avid shoe wearer. Um, and actually, um, him wearing shoes is a significant thematic element, element uh, in the movie. Um, and you'll have to watch it to kind of understand. I'm not going to dive into that right now. Um, but he's an avid shoe wearer. And then he proceeds to interview this new accountant, this mutant. And, um, you know, he asks him these really absurd questions about the Fibonacci numbers. Um, and I love, oh, I, I love that. He says, um, he says, tell me the Fibonacci series from its 11th to its 15th integer or whatever he says. And it actually speaks volumes to, again, the accountant's character because he knows him. And he kind of gets a little bit excited at the idea of being like, ooh, uh, Fibonacci numbers. Okay, I can do this. And he starts rattling off the Fibonacci numbers. And again, if you don't know what the Fibonacci series is, go ahead and Google that. And it'll explain Fibonacci numbers are kind of like prime numbers, but different. Um, and they pop up in science and in nature all the time. Very interesting stuff. Um, but it, it shows his character. He's an accountant and he likes numbers. And so the moment he's asked about Fibonacci numbers, 
he, his eyes light up a little bit. It's the first time we've seen him show any sort of energy at all um, in this scene. And then we get to the end question where he asks them about the hot dog to hot dog bun ratio, you know, which is the conundrum that you buy buns in packs of eight and you buy hot dogs in packs of 12. And so there's never enough buns for the hot dogs. And uh, he asked the accountant about this. And then this beautiful, beautiful moment happens where he's like, why would you do that? And uh, this guy is sort of like surprised. The, the accountant is surprised that he's being asked this. He's like, this is out of left field. But he's struggling to come up with an answer. He's like supposed to be the guy that has the answers, right? So he's like, um, in, in case you drop a couple. And he's like, what fool would drop a hot dog? And then there's this beautiful line. And it's super subtle. And if you're not paying close attention, you miss it. But the accountant says, well, anything can happen, sir. And suddenly Mr. McGoram stops and looks at him. And he says, yes, anything can happen. Do you realize what just happened there? That there is so much subtext with this, this idea of anything can happen. You have the accountant sort of insurance type of guy who says anything can happen and it's like a it's like a plan for the worst thing right the 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 meaning he puts behind the phrase of anything can happen is that essentially anything crazy or bad or negative can happen so you have to be prepared for it hence the hot dog to hot dog bun ratio thing like anything can happen you never know when something's going to go wrong and that is his character he views the world from a lens of anything bad can happen so we should be planning for, for that and be prepared for it. But then Mr. Magorium looks at him and he interprets that statement a totally different way. He looks at this accountant and says, yes, anything can happen. And it's sort of like a glass half full sort of scenario where he's saying, Mr. Magorium obviously believes in magic. He has a magic toy store. And when he says anything can happen, it's a positive spin on it. It's like telling a kid, you can do anything. Anything can happen. Like the world's amazing. Like, like whatever you believe in can happen. And that's what Mr. Magorium thinks that the accountant is saying. And so he looks at him and smiles and is like, you're perfect for the job. Because you too believe that anything can happen. So they're saying the exact same words, but because of who they are as a character, the words actually take on a totally different meaning. So think about it next time that you say something. Anything can happen. Or is it anything can happen? The fifth and final way that you can reveal character I've placed here at the end of my list, and it is for a very good reason. But the fifth way that you can reveal character is through dress and appearance. And the reason I put this at the end is because I think it is actually, in most cases, the weakest way to reveal character, but often uh, for novices or new writers, often it's our go-to when describing a character. Even myself, when I sit down and start thinking about a character, a lot of times the first thing I think of is like, well, what do they look like? It's interesting because those details of what a person looks like usually bear little impact on who they are as a character, but novices will get this all wrong and they'll think, ooh, I need an interesting character. I guess I'll give them like 
a mohawk or half their head is shaved or you know they'll do something weird with the character and they'll be like yeah now my character is super deep and it actually doesn't carry a lot of weight um in fact an an agent whose blog i've been reading uh she reads lots of uh amateur and aspiring writers she reads a lot of their work and she says she can always pick out a novice when they lead with the description of how the character looks before talking about who the character is right but even still um there's a lot there's still things you can do with dress and appearance to reveal character you just want to be careful and not confuse it with being intrinsic to their character and it being more like a caricature representation of the character right don't mistake a person's unique appearance for being a unique character you need a lot more than that but let's discuss a few examples of this um one thing that leapt into my mind as i was thinking about dress and appearance is this idea of white beards uh white beards have become sort of synonymous with the wisdom um sort of a guide figure Uh, I don't know why, but this idea of a beard just denotes that someone has a lot of experience. And I guess it's because a white long beard comes with age and with age usually comes a lot of wisdom. Um, But I'm thinking things like Uncle Iroh or, you know, Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, Dumbledore in Harry Potter. I also thought about Priest from um, Count of Monte Cristo. Priest is this guy that Edmond Dantes meets in prison and he's sort of got a not sort of, he's full of wisdom and he's got all these wonderful things to teach um, Edmund. And of course, he's this elderly man with a beard. And, And it's become what I would say is like a trope. And these, once you recognize a trope, once you have a trope, you need to be aware of what its implications are and they can either work for you or work against you. Um, I think the, the white beard thing is, is super interesting in dress and appearance. It can be used to show someone of great wisdom. I actually like a lot how they use it with Saruman in the Lord of the Rings films um, because he was once a man with wisdom. And if you notice, his beard is tainted. And he's got this long white beard, but just beneath his lips, it's still got like this sort of dark black tone to it. And it's almost like Saruman has a tainted beard. Um, And Gandalf is super gray and scraggly in uh, the Fellowship. And then he becomes Gandalf the White in Two Towers. And of course, that symbolizes him stepping up. And so his dress and appearance is sort of tied to his character, at least says something about the state of his character. Um, Another example I wanted to mention is Zaphod that I brought up earlier from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, Zaphod has two heads. And of course, this is really jarring and surprising when it comes to dress and appearance of a character. Um, but it speaks to him just being one alien, even though he looks very human. The, the second head, when he reveals it, denotes that he is definitely alien. And that's helpful. Um, but I got to be honest, other than it just being weird, Zaphod is much weirder character based on his decisions than on anything he looks like. Uh, the things he says and the things he does uh, are, are worth a lot more in terms of revealing his character than his dress and appearance. Another character, uh, this is this is probably the first character I could think of where their dress and appearance is truly intrinsic to them as a character. And this shows how it should properly be done where the dress and appearance really does reveal character and it's not just a facade. Um, but it is the villain in the book, All the Light We Cannot See. 
um, Von Rumpel, and isn't that a great name um, for a guy? Because uh, Von Rumpel is actually kind of this heavier set, uh, sort of scraggly, sloppy guy. He is sort of rumpled. And so even his name is like tied to that. Um, he's eating a lot in, in all these scenes and, and, uh, he's not just eating, but he's often like got crumbs or he's spilling things or he's throwing the waste from what he's eating just on the ground. And he's just kind of sloppy and kind of a slob, but his character as the villain is uh, what he has that no one else does is patience. And so he gets into all sorts of situations where he is like interrogating people because that's what he's doing. He's interrogating people for the, the Nazi regime and his ability to just wait for them. He's like, it's okay. I'll wait until you're willing to talk. He doesn't like try and convince them. He doesn't, he doesn't like ask them all sorts of crazy questions. He's just like, I told you what I want to know. And we'll just wait here till you're ready to tell me. And they're like, can I go use the bathroom? And he's like, no. And he'll just sit and wait. And at first you're like, this is a little weird, but as it goes on and you see him in different circumstances, it becomes very jarring. Whenever he's in the room, you're just nervous because you're like his determination is is so strong and he's just like this super patient willing to wait kind of sloppy round guy another thing about his dress and appearance that's really interesting and it continues to reveal more and more about his character is he's got these swollen lymph nodes in his throat and he limps when he walks so it's like part of his appearance right he's got like this limp but it's because he's he's battling some sort of disease um, he's got strange growths on his groin and it, it it ends up being very closely tied to what he's chasing after and it's sort of revealing for his character who is supposed to be the sort of mechanical uh, pragmatic villain he ends up it reveals that he sort of has this belief in this mythical gemstone that he's chasing after. And it's just really interesting how it all comes about. And it, the description of who he is as a person, his dress and appearance is actually tied to that. The, this kind of frumpy, uh, unkempt character who he's got these health issues. And we just, we you just into it that he hasn't taken good care of himself as a human being. Another example of dress and appearance being done well, uh, I thought of was in the book Skyward by Brandon Sanderson. And you have this character, her name is Spensa, and uh, she's short. They reference it on a number of occasions. And a lot of times a description of a character may be unique to help the reader latch on to who they are, right? Um, Harry Potter, and I know we've talked a ton about him today, but right, the dark hair, the glasses, he's kind of nerdy, um, he's lanky, his hair is unkempt. It's unique, but it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't speak volumes to his character, but what it does is it helps us remember him quickly because he is unique and our minds tend to latch on to whatever is, is in contrast to its surroundings. So at first we think that Spencer, her being short, is sort of a way for us to just latch onto her as a character. And by the way, that is a good reason um, to describe your characters in a very unique way. Their dress and appearance um, can can definitely help us latch onto them as a character. But don't mistake the, a unique dress and appearance for an interesting character, <clears throat> because the two are not always uh, in league together. Um, 
But yeah, Spensa, she's short. And as the story proceeds, we kind of start to get the idea that she's got a little bit of like small man syndrome. She's this young girl, but she wants to do these big things. And she's got a chip on her shoulder. And her being short, they never address it that way. They never even... Uh, Brandon Sanderson, I mean, he's he's too good to make a mistake like this, but they never even bring it up super directly. But you start to get this vibe that her character, um, she's up against really big odds and she is determined to move forward and prove who she is. And it starts to become that that we recognize her character is tied to her being short in sort of this, this unspecific, unspoken way, right? It becomes, it becomes part of her character and it makes sense that, that her being short would contribute to her growing up the way she did. So that's one of the ways that you can make sure that dress and appearance is significant is you would ask yourself, what decisions did the character make in order to arrive at this mode of dress and appearance? Um, Another way that you can use dress and appearance to reveal a lot about character is allowing it to shift with time or as things change. I've got in front of me two pictures from the film Sing Street, which is this awesome awesome film about uh, a bunch of kids in the 80s uh, forming a pop band, um, Nyan to Duran Duran, Depeche Mode, uh, Tears for Fears, and they're trying to kind of be these cool 80s band. And it's really, really well done. It's super interesting, called Sing Street. And I've got these two images up in front of me that I'd like to describe because on the one, it's it's at the beginning of the film and the main character, actually all the characters are dressed in these prep school outfits, right? They've got little sweaters with a, with a, an emblem over the breast. Um, they're wearing slacks and dress shoes and ties and white collars, right? They're all going to a prep school and they all seem sort of uniform and homogenous and they seem like regular schoolboys in the beginning. But as the movie progresses and as the main character takes on his role as the front man in this pop band, he's, he totally starts to change his dress and appearance. And he's obviously emulating these 80s pop bands that, that do crazy things like The Cure um, or George Michael. And so in this other image that, that is taken towards the end of the film, the main character, his hair is all kind of frizzed up. He's kind of got this David Bowie vibe to how his hair is kind of mussed in the front and and uh, kind of standing up all frizzy. It's definitely channeling David Bowie. And then he's got this long scarf draped around his neck and this long like trench coat. And yes, he's wearing the prep school uniform beneath it, but everything else that he's got on and he's got his sleeves rolled up, it totally just feels like he's emulating these, these bands, this, you know, like I said, the cure and Depeche mode. So it speaks to where he's at as a character, right? His dress and appearance shifts as he's starting to take on the role of being the front man in this band. But it's interesting because he's not just taking on the role as a front man in a band, he's emulating what he sees in the pop culture of his day. And so it's kind of like this double-edged sword where it's like, oh, he's like the cool guy now. But at the same time, it's kind of a little clunky how he does it. And you're like, is he a wannabe or is he the real deal? And 
that's his character at this time and place. And so I do think that the best way to use dress and appearance to truly reveal character is if that dress and appearance can shift over time as the character goes through certain experiences. Their dress and appearance is going to change based on what they're facing and what they're after. And that way it becomes a character-driven decision and not just some gimmick to try and make the character seem different, we show how the how their environment and their choices led them to looking and dressing a certain way. So what are the five ways that you can reveal character? These are five super powerful tools that, that I've latched onto. And like I said before, there's many other ways that you can reveal character. Um, a lot of times foil characters can help. Uh, you know, you have two characters that are sort of mirrors or opposite of each other, and that reveals character. Um, but these five, to me, have been super helpful. Um, how others talk about them when they're not around, choices they make, how a character reacts to obstacles, what they say and how they say it, you know, their dialogue, that reveals character, and then their dress and appearance can help reveal character. So those are the five ways that I wanted to share today. And in closing, I just wanted to share a few segments from the book Huckleberry Finn. I actually opened this book today because I wanted to share some of the dialogue uh, to contribute to my section on how uh, modes of speech and um, the way people say things can reveal character. But what I found was what, much more illuminating. What actually happened is within the first like four chapters of Huckleberry Finn, I started to notice that Mark Twain is implementing many of these things that I just mentioned in order to reveal character. Huckleberry Finn starts at the end of where Tom Sawyer ends. Huck and Tom have found a bunch of treasure, and Huck has been taken in by one of the women around town, and he's sort of, they're sort of trying to civilize him, and he runs around with Tom, and Huckleberry Finn is interested in real adventures. Um, and so here's some dialogue that is, that is uh, super interesting. Huckleberry Finn is written from Huck's perspective, and so pretty much every line in it is essentially running monologue inside of Huckleberry Finn's head or as if he's telling the story to someone. And, and so that goes a long way to reveal character because every single line other than dialogue comes from Huck's head. Um, but what we have is Tom tells Huck to stick around and he's going to start a band of robbers and they run around and they're like kind of pretending to be robbers, but Tom doesn't talk about it that way. And Huck's really, he's kind of confused by this. And so one day he's like, there's going to be a circus and we're going to go steal everything. And there's going to be elephants and all this crazy stuff. And when they show up, it's really just a Sunday school picnic from people in the town. And they rush in and they scare the kids of the Sunday school and they steal some stuff. But then a teacher shows up and she yells at them and they, they drop what they 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 took and they run away and when they're done huck is asking tom he's like where's the elephants why didn't i see anything from the circus so here's taken directly from the book i said why couldn't we see them then he said if i weren't so ignorant but had read a book called don quixote i would know without asking he said it was all done by enchantment and this this highlights sort of the way that Tom treats Huck is he he kind of calls him ignorant several times. And Huck is 
he's not upset, but he's kind of confused by that. Why would he call him ignorant? He's like, I didn't see any elephants. And of course, Tom makes this really interesting allusion, not allusion, this direct reference to Don Quixote and the idea that we all get. We all get that Tom is just imagining these adventures because he's slightly more civilized. So the fact that Huck doesn't understand it, and we get that through his dialogue, that he's like, where were the elephants? We understand that Huck is this interesting dynamic of being both ignorant, and yet he's also the only person who sees the world clearly. Here's another line of dialogue that just shows how Tom looks at Huck, and actually how most of the townspeople look at Huck. Tom says, shucks, it ain't no use to talk to you, Huck Finn. You don't seem to know anything somehow. Perfect saphead. And this dialogue, again, just juxtaposes where Huck is coming from and how the townspeople and most everybody looks at Huck. So this is a prime example of how dialogue is just used to reveal the character and who Huck is and how people treat him. So then uh, there's, there's two things that happen um, early on in the book Huck Finn that just totally reveal his character. And that is um, his father... He hasn't seen in a long time, and somebody finds a dead body floating in the river, and it's about the height of Huck's dad, and so they assume that it's his dad. But Huck says this, But I weren't comfortable long because I happened to think of something. I knowed mighty well that a drowned man don't float on his back, but on his face. The body that they found that they thought was Huck's dad was floating on its back, and that's what he's referencing. He says, I knowed mighty well that a drowned man don't float on his back, but on his face. So I knowed then that this weren't pap, but a woman dressed up in a man's clothes. So I was uncomfortable again. I judged the old man would turn up again by and by, though I wished he wouldn't. So just the way that Huck says things speaks of, you know, where he comes from and this time and place. Um, so the, this dialogue is revealing. But even more so, it shows how, again, even though he's ignorant, he's also the only person that sees the world super clearly, right? I did a little bit of research on this, and it turns out that it is a common or it was a, a very common uh I guess, legend or way of thinking things. Um, but people believed that when a man drowned, he was face down. And when a woman drowned, she was face up. And there's actually a little bit of science uh, that backs this up. And it's that a uh, heavier set person, a person with a big gut or with big breasts, will, it, when they drown, they'll end up turning over onto their back because that's that's where the buoyant part of their body is, right? And so with that information... It, it actually, there, there is some truth. I mean, it's definitely not 100% the case, but often, I guess, when a woman drowns, she ends up on her back and uh, uh, a skinny guy will end up face down most of the time. So that's kind of where this idea comes from. But so Huck looks at the situation and it's so interesting because he's supposed to be the ignorant one right? He's the one that doesn't have an education. He's the one that was raised in the wild. And, and yet everyone else is so quick to assume that this is his dad. But Huck takes one look and he's like, wait a minute, they found the body on its back. That must have been a woman dressed like a man. And of course, that's ridiculous. I mean, chances are th this could have been a man that just ended up on his back when he drowned, right? It's not a law, but Huck sees it that way. And so he knows instantly that his pap isn't dead. And the interesting thing is, is while he is ignorant, 
he ends up being exactly right. His pap isn't dead. While everyone else just assumed, was super eager to just assume that this was his dad and write it off. Okay, so another way that you reveal character, if you remember, number one, is how people react to them when they're not around. So here we have Huck, and he goes outside, and it's in the middle of the winter, and he says the following. There was an inch of new snow on the ground, and I seen somebody's tracks. They had come up from the quarry and stood around the stile a while, and then went on around the garden fence. It was funny they hadn't come in, after standing around so. I couldn't make it out. It was very curious. There was a cross in the left boot hill, made with big nails to keep off the devil. And then right as soon as he sees that cross in the left boot hill, Huck goes running into town. Why? Because he has this treasure that he found at the end of Tom Sawyer. And what does he do? He runs up to the guy, the, the banker, who has been managing his money for him. And he instantly says, I don't want the money. You can have it. You can have it. You can have it. So, so what is happening here? Uh, it's a very ominous sign, these footprints in the snow. And uh, we can tell instantly that Huck is scared. And two, we're guessing that it's his dad. And the moment he sees the cross on the heel, Huck knows it's his dad and his dad's back in town. So what does he do? And, and again, this speaks volumes. First off, it says a lot about his dad because Huck is really nervous for his dad to come back. And again, that sets up a villain really nicely that we're afraid of Huck's dad. And so it was revealing his father's character just like that. But then what does Huck do? And this goes what I said. How does a character react to an obstacle? Huck runs into town and does the smartest thing possible. He goes and he uh, goes to this, this guy that's been managing his money, who's a trustworthy fellow. And he says, you can have it. You can have it. Take the money. And there's, there's a line of dialogue. So first off, his, his reaction is to do the smart thing. Again, Huck is actually really what you would call he has street smarts, right? He, he sees the world very clearly and understands. He puts things together really, really quickly, even though everyone calls him ignorant. And this just reveals that even more when he's faced with an obstacle, the first thing he does, he's like, oh my gosh, when my dad comes back to town, if my dad's back in town, he's going to want all that money. And he's like, I don't want to give it to him. So he runs and he deeds all that money, not deeds, but he, he, he kind of signs a document that gives all that money to the banker. And, and we know this banker's a nice guy. And uh, the moment that the danger's over, uh, he'll probably give the money back to Huck. And so it's like really clever what Huckleberry Finn does in this moment. And then uh, the banker is, he's confused and he's like, I'm puzzled. What, what's wrong? And here's a line of dialogue that just reveals Huck's character so deeply. Huck says, please take it and don't ask me nothing. Then I won't have to tell no lies. And it, oh, it just, it's dripping in character, right? This idea that he's like, just trust me. And Huck's like, I know I can lie and tell you something that'll make you believe this is happening. He's like, but I don't want to have to tell a lie. I'm trying to be a good boy. But he also knows that he can't tell the old guy why he, or not the old guy, he can't tell the banker why he's doing these things. And again, it's because Huck is actually really, really smart. So this last segment that I want to share from Huckleberry Finn does two things. It has powerful dialogue that reveals character. And then there's also some dress and appearance that reveal character. And it's super interesting how, how that comes about. Um, Huck's dad shows up. And he is in Huck's room when he gets home one night. And it's this very, it's sort of this heavy, tense scene. And uh, his dad has a number of things to say to Huck. 
and just pay attention to the dialogue and, sh- and you'll see what it reveals about each of the characters. But there's also some reference to dress and appearance um, that play right into who these two characters are, right? You've got this this old guy who's in his 50s and he's sort of like like a marsh person, raised in the woods, got no learning. And then you have Huck, who's kind of caught between where he's coming to all this money, but he 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 doesn't want to be told what to do. The city living is sort of stuffy and filled with rules that Huck doesn't understand. But you'll get it all as as this as this scene plays out. Huck's dad says, he calls him Pap. Start your clothes, very. You think you're a good deal of a big bug, don't you? Huck says, maybe I am, maybe I ain't. Don't you give me none of your lip, says he. You've put on considerable many frills since I've been away. I'll take you down a peg before I get done with you. You're educated too, they say. Can read and write. You think you're better than your father now, don't you, because he can't. I'll take it out of you. Who told you you might meddle with such highfalutin foolishness, hey? Who told you you could? So in this in this bit of dialogue, we get a few things from his pot, from his pat. First off, Huck is wearing nicer clothes, and it, and it speaks to sort of the character change that he's gone through. And we even know that he's not he doesn't actually like these these clothes all that much. But to his father, the clothes are a symbol of status. They're a symbol of the change that Huck has gone through, where he's getting educated and he's becoming more like a townsfolk. And his dad is upset about this because it it hurts his pride. Right? He says, you think you're better than your father now, don't you? And that's where all of this is coming from. The reason his dad is such a jerk, at least to Huck in this scene, is because of his pride. Everything he's doing is based on, you think you're better than me. And that, of course, reveals deeply uh, Pap's character. As I was reading this, the first few chapters of Huckleberry Finn this morning, I just started noticing how so many of these tools are being implemented to constantly reveal things about the characters in the story. And it really, really works to get you thinking and get you understanding who they are and why they're doing what they're doing. And then again, Huck is the type of character that we know uh, or we learn as you read that he's going to do things that we don't expect, right? When his pap is coming back to town and he doesn't want to deal with it, he builds himself a raft and he gets the heck out of Dodge. Because unlike us, we're all more like the townsfolk, right? We're tied to things, tied to family, tied to friends, tied to school, tied to work. He's not. He's like, you know what? If I don't like it, I can just dip out. And that's what makes Huck such an interesting character. And then on top of that, when enter Jim, the runaway slave, it really sheds light on this idea that Huck, even though he's ignorant, He's still the only person who sees the world clearly because the townsfolk have these prejudices, right? It's it's a time where uh, in the South and in America, slavery is a thing and people are just terrible um, and, and do terrible things to uh, black people. But Huck doesn't understand it. And a lot of the times through the story, he, he kind of like grapples with it. And he's like, why? Like Jim's Jim's a great guy and he's willing to help him and he's willing to take him down to try and flee him. He takes him along his journey to kind of help Jim uh, become a free man. And I mean, that's the whole, that's a big part of why Huck is doing what he's doing. And it's because he can see clearly that unlike the townsfolk, he sees Jim as a human being. And so it's just this really, really interesting character of who is Huckleberry Finn, who is Jim, and so much of it is revealed in the way they say things, but then how they react to their circumstances around them. 
At the beginning of this episode, I said, we come for the plot, but we stay for the characters. I would advise you to start writing down your favorite characters. If you are a writer or interested in narratives, or even not, if this just if these types of ideas just interest you, you should take a list and, and start writing down the characters that you're drawn to, and you'll start to find that they share some of these traits that they're super interesting for specific reasons, and, and those interesting elements of their character get revealed through these methods that I've been mentioning. We come for the plot, we stay for the characters. <laughs>